0: Eighty-seven years ago to the month, a group of pastors and professors and laymen gathered together in Barmen, Germany, because they were profoundly concerned about how the German church had folded under an individual by the name of Adolf Hitler. And they read Romans chapter 13 and said, well, we are to submit to the governing authorities. And submitting was what they were doing. Some within the confessing church of Germany realized that there were certain limits to Romans chapter 13. We'll talk about them today if the good Lord is willing. But these courageous individuals wrote what is known to this day as the Barman Declaration. I commend it to you. And I urge you to go home and Google it. It's only six articles. It runs about six pages. It's not very difficult to read, but it is profound and speaks to our time in an incredible way. The Barman Declaration. One commentator on that declaration said this, related to the first article of the declaration. One of the acute and enduring failures of the church in the exercise of its teaching office has been the inability to make clear the distinction between the worship of God in Jesus Christ as our ultimate loyalty and the service of one's nation as a penultimate loyalty. I took such a deep breath this week when I read that quote, Because I thought, I've been pretty close then. I've been doing a good job in terms of calling to your attention that our ultimate allegiance always and forever will be to God in Christ and his kingdom. And though the love of country is a good thing, it is not an ultimate thing. Nor should it be. And what the Barman Declaration, amongst other things, declared was that the church was folding. It was folding and not speaking prophetically to Hitler and his machine, and instead were capitulating. There was no telling the difference between the government and the church. And I fear that in many places, dare I even say, in this country, similar things are happening. Oh, not that there's a Hitler, although some of you might disagree with me, although there's not a Hitler in office right now, the church has seemed all too comfortably ponied up to the state so that in some places it's very hard to tell the difference. I've been laboring to oppose that kind of mentality, which is not to say that I don't love the country but I keep the country where it belongs, in second place, to my loyalty and allegiance to Jesus Christ as the King alone. Uh, so far in our study of Romans 13:1 to seven, we've taught right out of the Bible that we are to be subject to the governing authorities because they have been instituted by God To approve what is good and to carry out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. That's their call. And that's what the church is to do vis-a-vis the state. We are to speak prophetically to our government that they are to reward the good and punish the evil while maintaining a distinction from it. Something that the confessing church back in the 1930s and even 40s were not doing in Germany. Hence the declaration. We've also learned that all such authorities, as I've been saying now for a couple of weeks, are derived. They're penultimate, next to the ultimate, but not ultimate. They're derived, and therefore they're momentary. Only God's authority is ultimate, Which means that when the kingdom of God collides with the kingdom of man, God is to be obeyed, even when the kingdom of man persecutes. And so we ask again, how do we love God and neighbor and even enemies without conforming to the world, without so identifying with a political, particular political party that we fail to be the church, a sign of the coming kingdom of God, characterized by, as Paul says in Romans 14, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Today, in verses 5, 6, and 7, Paul first is going to repeat. He's going to summarize the one command that's in the text. That's in verses 5 and 6. And then in verse 7, he gives us four obligations following from that single summary command. Okay, So the outline is very simple, as it has been. In verses 5 and 6, the one command is summarized. In verse 7, the four obligations that come to 1st century Rome and 21st century Staten Island, they still very much apply. Let's look first at the one command summarized in verses 5 and 6 of Romans chapter 13. Therefore, therefore, one must be in subjection. There it is again. It's the same as verse 1, right? Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. So he's got this therefore. After he repeats the command, then he's going to add another reason for the command, Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So therefore, as you know, looks back, it looks back to the earlier reasons that Christians are to be in subjection. And as I've already said them to you, that we are to be in subjection to the governing authorities because they are to reward the good and they are to punish the bad. They, unlike us, bear the sword. In other words, they can punish evil even, even if by force, if necessary. That is not given to the individual Christian. We are not to seek our own revenge. We are to seek God and leave it to him. So there's a differentiation between the, the, the individual and the state. And it raises all kinds of stuff, which I can't get into right now, about what exactly what exactly power the state has to bring into war and those kinds of uses of the sword for those who are Christians. It's a moral dilemma, admittedly, not one for platitudes and easy answers at all, but Therefore, Paul says, because they're ordained of God to reward good and punish the bad in order to avoid God's wrath on us. Because, I mean, Paul brings out some pretty heavy words there in verse 2. He says, he says that you risk incurring judgment if you disobey God's command. And now he adds a second reason. The second reason is not, as you see negatively there, not just to avoid God's wrath, but then the second reason is here now, but also for the sake of conscience. That's a fascinating statement. It kind of comes out of nowhere. Like, well, what does that even mean? Like, okay, I understand, okay, I, I, I'm to obey, and I'm, I'm to do good, and not to do evil, because if I do evil, I should expect punishment. If I rob a bank, I should be, I should be punished. But now he says, do it also for the sake of conscience. Hmm. What does that mean? I should submit to the governing authority for the sake of my conscience. First of all, let let me tell you what I think the conscience is. Conscience is that internal sense of right and wrong. Conscience is an internal sense of right and wrong and... Not just that, but it also has associated with it the moral accountability that comes with it. So if your conscience, if you do something wrong and your conscience gets your attention, it's not just simply that you feel badly about cussing somebody out, but you also, what the conscience does is it reminds you that there is a penalty to be paid for that. You have a moral responsibility for this. This is Romans 2. Paul goes on at length about Romans 2, that even unbelievers who suppress the truth of God have a conscience that tells them the difference between right and wrong. That, by the way, is always a good place to keep in mind when you're witnessing to somebody that 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 innate understanding of right and wrong always gives you an entry point to the gospel. You ask somebody, if you ran over somebody while you were driving, are you going to feel good or bad about that? I'm going to feel badly about that. Why? Where does that come from? It gets to be really wonderful conversation. A little heady and philosophical, and it'll take us too far off, and I won't go there right now, but I I put that out in front of you. But the other thing with regard to conscience is that the conscience needs to be Trained. The, 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 the number of hours I've spent in counseling over my years of ministry with people who ha, people who have a for lack of a better expression a weak conscience and by that I mean everything that they do bothers them they sneeze the wrong way and their conscience is bothering them. I'm not making it up. That conscience needs to be trained. How? For the believer, through the word of God. Saturating yourself in the scriptures. Asking the spirit of God to saturate you with the truth of the scriptures so that you know what is truly right and truly wrong. If you cough into your elbow, don't freak out that you're going to infect everybody on the planet. That's not something you ought to feel guilty about. But there are some people who will. That That's tricky. That's a form of bondage that you were never meant to bear. And so the hours that I spend with people ferreting out false guilt and false shame, and a lot of it has to do with Mother's Day, and a lot of it has to do with Father's Day. The number of people that I sit down with, and I say, I can't get past my mother. I can't get over my father. He made me feel like this. She did that to me, and I I still bear those wounds. That's real. Don't get me wrong. That's real. But by God's grace and mercy, we can move past this guilt that we bear from 50 years ago when I just could never please my father. It's not something your conscience needs to continue to bother you about. Second reason for doing this is for sake of conscience. Okay, so a a little, little tutorial there on what the conscience is. Now, knowing, now how does this work? Submit to governing authorities for the sake of conscience. Knowing that governing authorities are still part of God's good order in the world, we are to be in subjection to them. Let me say that again, because that's the point there. This is the point about the conscience. You, as informed Christians... See, this is why preaching is so incredibly dangerous and why I literally lose sleep over texts like this. Because you now are being informed. God help you and me. But now knowing that the governing authorities are part of God's order in the world to disobey the governing authorities is to disobey God. You say, oh, well, wait a minute. Didn't you just start with the Barman Declaration, and these leaders stood up and said, no, we're not going to follow the government? Hmm. Yes, I did. Hold that over here, because I'm going to get there. But that's why we do it for sake of conscience. You know, as maturing and informed Christians from the Scriptures, that this is an instrument of God's order in the world, that you are to submit to it because he calls you to do that. And not to do it pricks your conscience. You cheat on your taxes? It should bother you. Yeah, but some of my tax money goes to Planned Parenthood. So, pfft, on paying my taxes. No. If you knew where every penny of your taxes went, you wouldn't want to pay half of them, regardless of who's in the office. Be careful. Be careful, because it's not just your person that spends your money the right way. doesn't matter who's in the White House. Planned Parenthood gets their money. knowing that the governing authorities are still part of God's good order in the world, we are to be in subjection to them and to rebel against them ought to prick your conscience. That's Paul's point. He appeals to to that innate part of us that God has given to us. For because of this now see verse six, for because of this, the four is a reason coming here, because of this, that namely, for the sake of conscience. In other words, because of the sake of conscience, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers. I said to you last week, the first time they're described as ministers, they're, they're, the word literally is deacons. They're deacons of God. Here's a different word. But it's now it's now language that's usually used in the temple of priests. So there is... Watch this now. It's an incredible way to start thinking about politics and the government. The people who are in authority right now are to serve as the priests of God to the world that they're leading. Now... You and I can scoff all day long because we know of all of the leaders around the world on two hands, we could probably count the people who actually would think anything like this. But that's not for you to worry about. God's keeping that score, and he will on the last day. It's for the church to speak the truth to power and to suffer for it because the machine will roll you over. For because of the sake of conscience, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers, servants of God, attending to this very thing, as the NIV says, attending full-time to governing. So they're to be honored for doing that. And they declare their tax plans, and nobody on the planet likes a tax plan. <laughs> now I'm going to start the medal. Because as soon as you start complaining about taxes, because I've never done that. I'll remind you that Luke 20, 25, recording the words of Jesus, says very simply, give to Caesar what's Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Give me a coin. You've got a coin? Wh- whose, whose image is on the coin? Caesar. Then give to Caesar what his. And give to God what is God's. If Jesus ever had an opportunity to overthrow the government right there, that was was the opportunity. And he didn't. His kingdom is not of this world. And you know, as I've quoted already to you in John chapter 19, he looks at Pilate and scoffs. He says, you think you've got authority? You only have authority because my father has given it to you. If he goes like this right now, you're dead. Paying taxes, how radical is this? Paying taxes is a form of loving your neighbor. If a government is good, if a government is doing what it's supposed to do, in other words, create structures that allow for human flourishing, then the paying of your taxes pays for those structures that allows human flourishing. Now, I know I'm cynical enough, and many of you are as well. I know that you start thinking about your tax dollars and where they're going, and it, and it looks something like the BQE up here. It has it looks since I pulled in to New York City in 1997. And I, every time my wife and I have got this cynical going joke, and it's simply this, it's going to look great when it's finished. I swear there are still some Jersey barriers on, on the BQE that have been there since 1997. But it's going to look great when it's done. So that's, that's the command. Be subject to avoid the wrath of God and for the sake of your conscience. Now here are the four obligations. Verse seven, pretty straightforward, fairly easy to move through. Pay to all what is owed to them, So you have to understand that there are some now who are living what I describe, big words, I know a couple weeks ago I described it as an over-realized eschatology. Eschatology is a fancy word for study of the last things of the end times. An over-realized eschatology is simply something that means you believe that Jesus is going to be back tomorrow afternoon, so you're not paying taxes because you're gone. That's going on in the first century. And Paul's saying, pump the brakes. No, no, no. Even if Jesus does come back tomorrow and the temple guard shows up and you have to pay the temple tax, pay him. God will take care of the rest. Pay him. That's what's going on. And there are some that are literally called zealots. No, no, no. We're overthrowing the government. We're, we're, we're Jesus' people. We're overthrowing the government. We're rioting. We're going to do whatever it takes to take out people or in power that we despise. You find that nowhere in the Bible. That's a sobering word right now. It doesn't mean that you agree with everything, but it does draw very significant boundaries about what a Christian in the name of Jesus can and cannot do. So as a matter of going with the grain of God's design for humanity, Paul now lists four practical obligations, and he does so under the heading that begins, verse 7, pay to all what is owed them, full stop. Pay to all what is owed them. Now, I'm going to create a little bit of tension here and have you hold that right there, because if you read verse 8, it then says, owe nothing to anyone except love. Wait a minute. You're telling me that I owe taxes, but now in the next verse you're telling me I don't owe anybody anything except love. How how do I reconcile that? I'm going to I'm going to ask you to live in a little bit of tension because next week if the good lords willing we're going to want to get 138 and I'll try to help you and myself understand how that all works. Okay? Paul's not contradicting himself. He's laying out a very consistent ethic here, and I want you to understand it, in light of not being conformed to the pattern of this age, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind in view of God's mercies. None of this is possible. If your stomach is churning right now, if your cynicism is up to your eyeballs, plead 12.1, plead Romans 12.1, in view of God's mercies, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. That is your spiritual worship. You can't do this if the mercies of God is not, are not pouring through your veins. You know, let's face it. And this is part of the point. Because, insofar as we get our backs up, insofar as we get cynical, insofar as we tell the government what they can or cannot do, is the degree to which we've not experienced the mercies of God in our lives. Wow. Pay to all what is owed them. So there's a call for discernment here. I I, want to make a point here. There's a call for discernment. this This is not a blanket statement. You don't give everybody everything, and not everybody gets the same thing. This kind of discernment is throughout the epistles in the New Testament. We have to pray for discernment. What do I owe to? Who do I owe this to? This kind of thing. And Paul differentiates for it right here, at least in broad strokes. He says that right now. Taxes to the one taxes are owed. Revenues to the one whose revenue is owed. He's not telling you to go pay taxes to everybody. No, you've got to pray for discernment. Who do I owe taxes to? I'll pay them. Who do I owe revenues to? I'll pay them. And if they're not part of them, you don't have to pay them taxes. God give us discernment. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed. It's, it's one and the same kind of thing. Here, here's how it works for us today. You'll go, oh, oh, that's the difference. Okay. That's how the difference It's the difference, say, between an income tax and a sales tax. That's really what's going on here. There's all kinds of taxes going on in first century Rome. Oh my gosh. The Pax Romana, the Roman peace. Yeah, the Roman peace by the sword and taxation. Nero. Riding the coattails of the Caesars prior to him, declares emperor that he is, lord that he is, literally Lord Caesar. You say Lord Jesus, you're a, you're about to die. Pax Romana. Yeah, there was peace because everybody's shaking in their boots. Taxes all over the place. There was a tax for this. There was a tax for that. It's like living in New York City. There's a tax for that. Hey, you have Verizon, look at your Verizon bill next month. There are some things on that bill. I, I, I looked at it the other day. I literally said right out loud. My wife, I don't think she heard me. I was sort of like, what? And the, what? New York City gets a tax, and and my next-door neighbor gets a tax, and and the guy driving the yellow taxi gets a tax, and like, what? what? You know, it's $0.03 cents here. It's $0.12 cents for that. I was like, for to, to watch a box that's killing my soul? Ooh, I'm sorry. I did that, didn't I? My bad. Taxes to whom taxes? So that's the big tax. That's like, that's like you getting deductions out of your paycheck. Revenues, that's when you go to the store and you pick up some groceries and there's 78 cents of tax that you have to pay on that. That's, that's, not, that's not the government's tax. I mean, and it is. That's not, that's not the tax that you're paying to the IRS on your income. That's a tax you're paying for that service. That's the difference right there. Taxes to whom taxes the road, revenues. So don't go in to stop and shop after church and, and, and kick up a storm and say, I'm not paying that sales tax. I mean, it gets, it gets that practical, though. Go to stop and shop, buy your groceries, whatever it is you have to buy, pay the sales tax, and consider yourself blessed that you're obeying God and paying that sales tax. I'm not kidding you. I'm not kidding you. Does your faith get down there? Does your faith get down there? Does it get into the pores of your body that far that you can actually look at a, at a supermarket receipt and say, praise God, I can give them this sales tax? Pay stop and shop the taxes that are do them. Pay the IRS the taxes that are due them. If you end up owing the IRS, talk to your accountant so that he redoes your, your work and you don't have to pay him at the end of the year. If your accountant arranges it so that you get money from Uncle Sam, make sure you get it on January 1st because I don't want Uncle Sam holding my money. I want my money. Respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Here again, there's overlap. Not a huge difference between respect and honor, but here's here's what I want you to understand. It's respect for the office. And all that language that we flip around right now, you might loathe who the president of the United States of America is. That does not give you permission to loathe him. Not if we're reading this the right way. You may, you, may, you may say, I don't care much for his policies, but I respect the office. That I think is in keeping with the spirit of this text. I have significant differences of opinion with the governor and with the mayor and with the president of the United States right now. Nothing's going my way. It's going God's way, but it may not be going your way. doesn't allow you to lead a personal insurrection, even if all you're doing is complaining at home about how much you disagree. By the way, I have my own significant struggles with, go- with what's going on right now as well. But living in this passage, it has really pulled me back. And I pray, I literally am praying that it does the exact same thing for you. God first. And we got to be careful with this God and country. Because God and country becomes this. Keep in mind the backdrop here is the fifth commandment, right? Honor those who honor is due. So there's a Mother's Day message right here. Unfortunately, I don't have the time to do all of it. But honor to whom honor is due. So each and every one of you with mothers that are alive... You've got a commandment of the Lord that's meant to liberate you to honor your mother, to honor your father. It's the fifth commandment. Sending your mother a Mother's Day card is obedience to God. Peter says it this way, 1 Peter 2.17, honor everyone, that is, honor every image bearer. There's another whole sermon right here. Peter's parallel passage to Romans chapter 13 is 1 Peter chapter 2. And there, Peter, in two words, says, honor everyone. Everyone. There are no exceptions. Every human being that's created in the image of God deserves honor. Full stop. And then he goes on to say, love the brotherhood. Brothers and sisters in the faith, look around the room. Every person in this room, you're called to love. And then he goes on to say, fear God, worship God. For those who are in Christ, fearing God is to be caught up in his holiness, to worship him and honor the emperor, honor the emperor. But notice here the discernment. You see the discernment I'm talking about? Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. It does not say love the emperor. It does not say fear the emperor. It says honor the emperor. Radical differences there and we ought not to cross those lines. We've gotta be very, very careful where our love goes, where our fear goes, and where our honor goes. This is how one writer says it. Submission to the governing authorities is therefore an expression of respect, not for the authorities themselves, though that's included, but for the crucified deity who stands behind him. Boom, in a sentence. Submission to the governing authorities is therefore an expression of respect, not only for the authorities themselves, but more importantly, ultimately for the crucified deity, Jesus Christ, who's behind them. who who himself said in Matthew chapter 28, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Nobody, literally nobody from North America to North Korea has any governing authority apart from Christ. How's that for a worldview for you? And now we've got to go home and make peace with that. Nobody from North America to North Korea lifts a finger, and does anything politically apart from the lordship of Jesus Christ. So I leave you with this. It's that one nagging question. Remember I closed last week with that one nagging question? And this is where some of the emails came in. The one nagging question remains. What if... What if the governing authorities failed to carry out their God-ordained calling? What if? And now we come all the way back around to the Barman Declaration, where these pastors and professors and laymen got together and said, in obedience to Scripture, we cannot because now this is asking us to compromise our testimony to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that I put before you is your drawing line. That's your line in the sand. I submit myself to the governing authorities. The moment that governing authority tells me to disobey God, we look with gentleness and respect into the eyes of that governing authority and say, sorry, like Peter did before the council in Acts chapter 5, we must serve God rather than man. What, what if they demand that we disobey God? Or to put it another way, what if they demand that we worship them? It's the same thing. To be told to worship them is the same as being told to disobey God. See, and that's where I believe the church is not making a fine enough distinction. Because there's far too much overlap right now between... Politics and the church. And the church is just ripping hair out of her head, thinking that unless certain people are in certain places, we're doomed. Where is your faith in the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings? If I have to listen to one more conspiracy theory that that entirely neuters the power of God in the world— I am going to go for a long walk on a short pier. It just boggles my mind. I have never watched or listened to more political commentary across the spectrum than I have in the last few months of my life, and my wife will tell you I'm ready to jump off a bridge. Because people either in the name of Jesus or totally devoid of the name of Jesus, are making it sound like this is the kingdom on earth, and if, we, if it gets out of our grasp, we're gone. Well, yeah, maybe you will be. What if, what if the government is unjust, especially to particular people groups? And this is where, admittedly, I, I, I got some attention this past week. What, what if the government what if the government has policies, has actions that at least appear? And I would argue it's more than appearing, unjust, unjust treatment of blacks, browns, Native Americans, unjust treatment of immigrants. And I I know each and every one of these words is a hot button. I understand how loaded this is. It's not lost on me. And I'm not trying to pick a fight. I'm really not. I'm trying to work this out in front of you, together with you. What should we do if a government seems to systematically fail to honor image bearers? It says we are to honor image-bearers. What if we're not? Is it right? Keeping in mind the larger context of Romans 12 and 13, is it right? Is there a place for nonviolent resistance, for protest? Revelation 13, says a writer commentating on the Barman Declaration, Article 3, Revelation 13 authorizes resistance to the Roman Empire, who is is described as a whore, Babylon. Even as Romans 13 advises obedience, according to the Bible, Christians fulfill their political responsibilities not only by rendering obedience to just government, but also by resisting oppressive government. History is full of instances where Christians were obligated to hold the governing authorities accountable. That's the role of the church, one of the roles of the church, not its ultimate role. Uh -uh. The thing that makes us the church is the gospel. But one of the things that we're responsible for, obligated, is to hold the governing authorities accountable, not only to render obedience as guided by ethical criteria of what makes for the common good of all. The answer to the question, I think, is yes, there is a place for protest. Yes, there is a place for nonviolent resistance. In the Old Testament, the Old Testament just drips with it. Moses. Moses. Esther, Daniel, every single one of the prophets decried the pride of those who were abusing political authority. And in the New Testament, I just told you Revelation 13, but I also quoted to you Acts chapter 5, verses 27 through 29, the high priest Peter and the disciples are brought before the high priest, before the council, and the high priest says to Peter, literally says to Peter, we've told you once, and you've not listened to us. I'm telling you again, shut your mouth. And Peter says, Peter articulates one of the most famous lines in all of the Bible, Acts 5.29. He looks power in the eye and said, We must obey God rather than men. He does not take out his sword. He does not yell for an insurrection. He goes out the door with his compadres, and they pray and preach. And that, I put before you, church, is the most revolutionary thing the church can do. It's the most revolutionary thing the church can do and is currently not doing it. You may disagree with me, and I will love you. I pray the same toward me. You may have me all pegged politically. You, you probably don't, You'll, you may try, but you probably won't be right. I'm looking you all in the eye, streaming or in this room, and I'm simply telling you that I'm struggling And I'm inviting you into the struggle with me to try to make sense of the word of God speaking to our hearts and minds in a day that is just fraught with division. The church included, and I can't help but think that this is not pleasing to God. We must obey God Peacefully, non-violently, before we obey anybody that tells us, listen to me please, anybody that tells us to do anything that keeps us from prayer and proclamation. And in the meantime, we submit. We put ourselves in line with God's grain of the universe so that we are good citizens and where we don't lose our prophetic edge is when the government begins to supersede the role of the church and they tell us what we can and cannot do regarding Our our Lord, our Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name we preach, and now pray. We thank you, O God, for this day and for this text. It's a hard one, but as this church knows, and I pray regularly, we thank you for hard texts. They they make us work hard to understand them, and this is countercultural. And that's what it's supposed to be. I pray, Father, that we would not lose our prophetic edge. I pray that we would not lose what we have been created for. That before we're anything else, we are witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we proclaim that Jesus is Lord. God, help us. I don't have this perfectly straight. I'm, I'm guessing that there, there may be people who will disagree with me. And I, Father, you know me, that I have not gone out of my way to try to besmirch any particular party or person. And if I have, please have mercy on me. I say that in front of all these people. But as I said last week, if we, if we got this right... Then I need to change. And my friends, these saints need to as well. And that means years and years and years of ways of thinking need to be questioned. We cannot assume that our way is always the right way, whatever that even is. So I pray that you would help them as you would help me, that we, in the words of this song we're about to sing, would indeed, would indeed surrender all, all to thee, our blessed Savior. Surrender all. In the name of Jesus, amen.